Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us, or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much for being here with me. Uh, not much of a surprise, I'm sure. To hear that the Republicans need a little more time to get it together on the uh, health care bill. We'll certainly talk about that this hour. Also, the the war with the media over the media, something certainly worth discussing. I, I think now, actually, p- part of part of the discussion becomes, is this an area where there should be uh, such a, a focus from the administration? Is this a distraction or is this central to the fight? You'll notice that people are now taking both sides of this argument, even among uh, those on the right. Um, and I think there are arguments to be had on both sides, but I, I want to give you where I fall on that spectrum. And uh, then in the uh, third hour day, I have a, a bunch of topics to talk to you about, including some of the latest uh, from CNN and uh, the way they're reporting on things. We we have a an undercover video of a CNN producer. We'll talk about that before the third hour, um, what that tells us about where the media is on all this, and then some other stories that just come to mind over the course of the show. Health care is the big item, the big issue right now. And we had Mitch McConnell say that, well, here's what Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader, said. 20- We're continuing to talk about it. This is a very complicated subject. I remember how challenging it was for the Democrats when they were enacting this uh, back in 2009 and 2010. It's a big, complicated subject. We've got a lot of discussions going on, and we're still optimistic we're going to get, we'll get there. They're not interested in participating in this. Members have, want, several of them want more time. Uh, we have a number of different discussions going on that have been going on for six weeks now, and they continue. This is a big, complicated subject. If, if none of you have ever covered a big, complicated bill, they're, they're hard to pull together and hard to pass. There's a big, complicated bill. Uh, it is a, a big, complicated bill. Uh, that's that's true. Uh, but I, I think we also immediately go back to the, well, you, you, have, you know, you, you've had like eight years, Mitch. You've had some time to figure this one out. And yet here we are, uh, Republicans not even able to get together and unite on what they want to do here. And let's also now note for a moment, at least, what the objections thus far are from the Republicans who will not go along. Uh, they, they vary. You have some who are in the uh, Medicaid expansion states that are moderate Republican purplish states that don't want to lose their seats. So this is just political survival for them. Uh, like Collins and and uh, Murkowski, uh, these are these are people who just don't want to see uh, they don't want to see the federal government goodies, which is what Medicaid is, right? It's the federal government uh, allowing that you know the federal government allows states 
to administer Medicaid. There are mandatory and then optional benefits for Medicaid programs, but there's also a match of dollar-for-dollar spending above a certain amount. In fact, I think it's actually a ratio that can be as high as three to one over a certain level in states. So there's an incentive, in a way, for states to spend beyond what they have on on Medicaid because then they get more money. Uh, They get more money from the federal government. So this is where we, this is part of the problem is that uh, government goodies are popular. People like free stuff and free stuff beats responsibility and austerity and wisdom and self you know, reliance and self-control and self-restraint and all that stuff. Free stuff usually wins. Uh, so that's that's part of the problem. So and that's and, and Democrats are just pro free stuff. So you've got some Republicans who are also standing around saying, well, you know, I kind of my, my constituents, there, there's some free stuff that they like to. And then you have the Republican uh, members who have problems here and, and they're making some good points about how they want bigger health savings accounts or more more uh, latitude for health savings accounts, as well as for states to have a bigger say in what is covered and uh, what is not covered, right? So but we should note here that even those who are making claims about how this is going to be free market or more, I should say, more free market than Obamacare, well, it'll it's more respectful of federalism than Obamacare is, but you're still going to have the state. And if, I mean, if you live in California, I, I promise you, you're going to be paying for like uh, illegal immigrant uh pediatric orthodontics or whatever i mean you know you're going to be paying for the most specific expensive uh you know you name it whatever the procedures are i mean they're, they're going to be covered right on under for medicaid it's it's going to be covered so uh you could you can bet on that so yes of course that then leaves some states to make smarter decisions but keep in mind that the whole experiment that we're supposed to be running here with different states, and you see what's going on right now with Illinois and its problems, uh, but the the experiment only works if the state feels the pain of its bad decision-making. And if, as we see with uh, Medicaid, you, you don't have a reform that continues on, right? If you don't change the, the current system, uh, whereby people are really, or states are encouraged to spend more, than they should or spend more than they have uh, on this healthcare welfare program, which is what Medicaid is, you're going to have big problems. So I know they're trying to reform it, but it takes many years for the reform to kick in. And the savings don't really seem to matter all that much uh, for a, a number of years. And that's a that's a tough sell. Um, but again, we're we're at this point where the states will be in charge. But if states are going to get bailed out by the federal government, for overspending on Medicaid, well, then states are going to overspend on Medicaid. And I know it's easy to suggest or easier to suggest now, oh, no, well, the states will, you know, they'll be held accountable and people will leave and the taxes. It's not always that easy. And that does work to some degree, but it's not as straightforward as that. So that's uh, where, where we are right now is we don't really know. The Republicans have to figure it out. They are not voting on this until after July 4th, which also means, by the way, we'll be talking about a whole bunch of other stuff today and for the rest of the week, too. This is not just going to be uh, a constant barrage of, of health care analysis. I do think this is the most important single issue 
uh, in the news cycle right now, though, so I thought it would be worth spending some time with you. The big news yesterday for the left, it came out later in the day, I mentioned it here on the show, was that uh, you're going to have, according to the Congressional Budget Office, 22 million people uninsured, but that's basing uh, the projection, which I know people say, well, the Congressional Budget Office uh, is often wrong, which is true. Uh, But even more to the point, yeah, if you don't have a mechanism in place that forces people to buy Obamacare under penalty of uh, having to pay a fine, if you don't have that, then, yeah, there will be people who just don't buy any health care plan. And Paul Ryan addressed this today. They're basically saying at the Congressional Budget Office is if you're not going to force people to buy Obamacare. If you're not going to force people to buy something they don't want, then they won't buy it. So it's not that people are getting pushed off a plan. It's that people will choose not to buy something they don't like or want. That's been the the uh, unpleasant truth of Obamacare all along. If this was such a good thing, why do you have to have a penalty? Oh, because you need to socially engineer, you need to coerce people into paying money for the benefit of all. Well, no, if, if you just allow if you just help people responsible for their decisions, you know, if you're if you're 25 years old and you don't want to have health insurance, you know, I, I was in my early 20s. And, you know, this I, I've, I've been through this process. You go in there and you just got to pay. Uh, you know, if you're if you're 25 years old and you don't want to have health insurance and, you know, you get heaven forbid, you know, hit by one of those crazy bicyclist that's always yelling at everybody about getting out of the bicycle lane here in New York City and and you know you got a broken arm or something you're going to you're going to pay and i mean that's obviously not the worst thing that could happen but i'm just saying it's there's going to be responsibility that people have to take upon themselves but no one really wants to say that I mean, we're we're, st- we're just playing a game here we're moving around we're a lot of what's really just complex financial engineering for the purposes of uh, political power, right? For the purposes of the party, whichever party's doing it, uh, f- showing their favored constituencies and, and showing their voting base. You know, see, we're we're doing these things that'll be good and it'll work. I mean, in in the end, you have a you have a scarce good, which is health care, not coverage. Coverage is just a concept. Coverage is, you know, we say this will happen for you. Well, if it doesn't happen, guess what? It doesn't happen. If you show up at the doctor and the doctor's like, "Sorry, I don't take that." Guess what? You're not, you're, you know, your your coverage is not really all that important. But you have uh, scarcity in healthcare resources, um, or or limited, we could say, finite healthcare resources, and dollars used, whether government spending or individual spending, chasing those resources. We can pretend that that's not the way it is, but it is the way it is, right? It was like the, the minimum wage discussion yesterday. You can, it feels good to say that you're going to pay everyone $15 an hour and there's going to be no ill effects on businesses or workers, uh, but that's actually not going to, that's not the truth. There will be side effects to this. There will, you know, every, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. I mean, stuff will happen because of this. And what we see with healthcare is just if you make it to Mitch McConnell's point, if you make it complex enough, you can convince everyone that somehow you're stretching all this out so that it takes care of everybody and it's all going to be just great. And r- the truth right now, based on what we see from the Republicans in the Senate, is that it's not going to be great. It's going to be meh, better than what it is right now, hopefully, if they do what they say they're going to do, if it gets through 
and it works as planned, and it has some some runway to get going because it's not going to be immediate. Not exactly the most inspiring stuff ever. Now, you can sell us on how this is necessary for um, necessary for tax reform, and okay, you can tell us that this will be one step of many in the reform of health care. Fine. But I just, along the way, refuse to forget the promises that were made and the rhetoric that was used by the very same people who are now saying, hey, get in line. Don't be don't be a pain about this. Uh, th- th- this is not this is not some uh, philosophical foreign policy discussion that is really just a, a, a battle of wits and has nothing to do with anything. Right. I mean, this is healthcare. This matters to everyone, as I keep repeating, because I think it bears repeating. This is something that is inescapable. We're all we're all living it in one way or another. If you're not, your family members are. If your family members aren't, your you know closest friends and colleagues and loved ones are. I mean, meaning that if you're not in the, if you think the healthcare system is great and haven't any problems with it, just wait. It's only a matter of time, and I'm sure pretty much all of you listening are like, oh no, I've had you know there have been problems. It would be it would be insane for you not to at some point. I mean, you'd just be insanely lucky. Uh, not to have had some issue with it. And some people have had very real and very uh, traumatizing issues with the healthcare system as it is now. And it's been made worse by Obamacare, as we know. So if we want to celebrate improvement, okay. If we're supposed to be excited about things being slightly better instead of being much better, that's a, that's a position I can get behind. I mean, look, I'm, I'm a, I was a cruise slash before him thinking about Rubio supporting a Republican during the primary who realized that, okay, Trump's the guy and he's better than Hillary and I'm voting for Trump and I'm supporting Trump and let's let's get this thing going, right? So I, I understand the art of the possible. I understand that this is not about maximalist demands all the time and, you know, it has to be perfect and letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. And, you know, I, right now I, I'm, I'm stumbling from one cliche to another, but I'm just trying to make the the core point that, okay, this health care bill is imperfect. But are people even trying to be honest about its imperfections? Because if we're going to make it better in time, I think it's necessary to say, okay, we didn't get this this time around, but let's move on it as it is. And then in phase two or phase three in a year or two years or whatever it may be, let's remember what didn't get fixed. Let's remember what still needs to be done. Let's not pretend that this is a cure. This is just an improvement. And uh, Senator Ron Johnson uh, has been very vocal on this point. We need to fix these collapsing markets that are Obamacare. Uh, we've got to drive premiums down. And so what I want is I want, first of all, the time to consider this fully, to allow my constituents in Wisconsin a chance to review it, provide their valuable input and feedback. And I, I'm not asking months, but let's take a couple of weeks. Let's be thoughtful about this. Give me a chance to make the case to improve it. I was trying to make the case in the Senate, pretty, pretty much largely ignored. We really are ignoring the fact that Obamacare artificially drove up premiums, double, in some cases, triple. Now, there's a reason for that. We refuse to do the root cause analysis, refuse to be honest, and I would say courageous enough, point out that all these things have very serious negative unintended consequences. That's my point here. Let's let's be honest and courageous when we talk about health care. That doesn't mean I'm saying the Republican Senate shouldn't push this through. It doesn't mean that I'm standing in the way of the agenda or suggesting other people should. But let's at least... Uh, call balls and strikes. Let's grade this as an honest teacher and not just give 
you know, check marks and an A-plus at the top of the page because, you know, go team. Is this better? It's better. Sure. Are there good things about it? Absolutely. Is it perfect or even close to perfect? Come on. It is not. So, we'll look at the good parts, we'll look at the bad parts, and we'll talk about what the future of this bill and the future of healthcare in this country is likely to be. We'll also talk about the media battle, some real fuel thrown on that fire today, and much more coming up this hour and next. Uh, T, we'll be back in a few. got about 70 million people in this country. I mean, the latest figures I see here for April 2017, maybe it's gone up a little bit since then, and it's just at about 69 million, uh, give or take. Uh, but, you know, so roughly 70 million people are enrolled in Medicaid in this country. Um, th- that's... And when you add... Uh, Nearly 36 million individuals are enrolled in uh, the CHIP program. I mean, you know, this is just an enormous part of the federal budget. Uh, when you when you look and you look at Medicaid spending, it has just exploded over time, and it was supposed to be for a relatively small uh, segment of the population, and now it's, as I said, it's about 70 million people. Uh, you know, I mean, everybody, come on. Right. You've got a uh, that that sizable a a part of the population is just astonishing. Um, It's astonishing that this is how quickly this program has grown. I mean, it's it's a third. One in three people are either on completely free or dramatically subsidized health care plans. And part of the problem here is the way these things are structured. By the way, you don't often hear about this. But the fraud in the Medicaid program, whatever they tell you it is, I can tell you it's much bigger than that. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't know the exact number, but I know that the the way that they uh, or the places where there can be fraud, a lot of a lot of it does come in the form of providers, right? Providers who are overbilling or billing for services uh, not rendered, and there's so many claims coming in through Medicaid that it's very hard to to audit them in in any you know, worthwhile or in-depth fashion. Um, but they estimate, I think, that you have about 10 to 12 percent of the hundreds of billions of dollars spent on Medicaid every year is just fraud. So you're 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 wasting tens of billions of dollars uh, to well, you're losing tens of billions of dollars to fraud. And when you look at the the program itself, um, you know the the users of the program are not in a position to make much of the way of demands from healthcare providers. Healthcare providers aren't going to be particularly responsive to Medicaid patients beyond giving them the minimum basic care that they're supposed to under there's the like I said, the federal uh, there are federal essential benefits or mandatory benefits, and then there are some that are determined by the state. But uh it's a program that reining it in seems like the only responsible thing to do from a fiscal perspective. And I think it actually would be better depending on how they do it for the recipients too, but the Democrats are acting like this is just the healthcare apocalypse. We've got more. I'll be right back. The 
Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. All right, we got some lines lit. Let's take them. Uh, Tim in Mississippi, WJDX. What's up, Tim? Hi. Yes, I uh, want to comment on the health care bill in the Senate or the health care insurance bill, I guess it should be called insurance. Um, Mitch McConnell, I don't have much use for Mitch McConnell. I think uh, what he's done, he goes into kind of closed committee and then comes out with a bill that does not achieve the objectives. And I think it was Mitch himself that said, we need to dismantle Obamacare piece by piece. Uh, he said that you know several years ago. But this bill doesn't seem to do that. It doesn't address the the cost of the program and the uh, uh, bringing in competitive pressures into the marketplace to bring the cost down. And for him not to put that in the bill, it seems to me he's just, uh, he's almost as if he's, we got a Democrat leading the Senate and this is what they've come up with a, with a, with a fix. You know, where's the voice of the conservatives here? He well, you know, you know, Tim, I think there's, there's a, a bit of, Republicans wanting to have it both ways here with uh, keeping in coverage for pre-existing conditions, not having an individual mandate, having a penalty period where if you drop coverage, you can't get coverage. But, you know, what's oh, and by the way, they're they're not going to be uh, they're not going to be using the individual mandate. They're saying now to prop up other people in the exchange but people are going to be getting tax credits. Well, that, that's just another way of, of subsidizing. You know, n- now it's just taxpayer dollars. It's coming from another source, but they're subsidizing people to buy insurance, but they're not forcing them to buy insurance. It's just it just seems like they're they're confused about, well, well what is it? Are, are we are you making the choice to buy insurance or is it not really a choice? You know, or, or, or is it free market or, or is this whatever the state or the federal government tells you it is? You know, is, is your plan something that you're in control of or is really the government telling you what's going to be on your plan? I, I don't feel like they have real answers to this yet. I, I don't think they would offer that they have answers to this yet, at least not if you push them on it. And, and I'm not sure Mitch McConnell has the capability to come up with real answers on this. I, Mitch is just not the guy to lead this process. He's not the guy to represent anything conservative. He's not a conservative. People say that he's got all this parliamentary skill and he, you know, he knows the process and he, he's like Nancy Pelosi, a master legislator. Uh, you know, I don't know. Where's the ma- master legislative hand so far in this? I don't, I don't really see much of it. Not at all. All right. Well, Tim in Mississippi Shield time, man. Thank you for calling in. I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not really, I'm not really getting it on this one. Uh, but like I said, I, I understand, you know, this there's it's better than Obamacare. No question about it. Right. But this this then turns into a, a, a similar discussion to, well, at what point can you be pro Trump administration, but critical of the Trump administration without just always being shouted down with he's not Hillary? I get it. This is not Obamacare. It's better than Obamacare, to be sure. But if they're still figuring out what they're going to do, I think it's imperative on all of us. While we still can, the American people that try to know as much as possible about what's going into this bill and exert pressure, uh, you know, call your call your senator. I mean, especially if you're one of these states where uh, the senators are, are waffling one way or the other on this or if you disagree with them. Steve in California on the iHeart app. Hey, Steve. Yo, we, we need to come up with a way 
to mark and identify all the Republicans that are in Congress right now in the House of Representatives who are not really conservative, and we need to get rid of them by the next election cycle. I don't know. I don't think you'd have anybody left. I think you'd have a lot of empty seats in Congress. Well, that'd definitely be something that will motivate them to want to to want to step up and, and play the play the game because we elected Donald Trump. We didn't elect them, and they they either need to go along with him, or they're going to get booted out, and we're going to we're going to have to replace them because otherwise, this shenanigans shenanigans are just going to keep going, and it's really pissing everybody off. Well, you know, I think that there's uh, a sense that people still like their own representative. You know, they like their own senator or they like their own congressman or congresswoman. And, and that's that's part of the problem is that they can always blame the party or blame D.C., the system, whatever it may be. There's so much deflection and these politicians are all masters of it. They're, they're good at at seeming like they understand the plight of. Of average folks, you know, this is this is the the oldest trick in the book for politicians. I mean, this, they were doing this in ancient Rome. They're doing this in ancient Greece. You know, for as long as people have been voting for people, they've there have been politicians standing up there saying, "Hey, you know, I understand what your problems are," and most of the time they're lying. Uh, and, and as as to members of Congress who are you know conservative, yeah, part of the issue here is look, I I mean, I'll say it. Part of the issue is the American people, or or more specifically. Uh, people who are Republicans, uh, I don't think they. I don't think enough of them really want what they think they want when it comes to health care, which is a system that isn't heavily government regulated and subsidized. Because we've become so used to this now. I mean, look at you know you got the the biggest bulge in spending comes at the end of life at end of life, and there you've got Medicare and Medicaid, by the way, uh, covering a, a huge portion of the cost. That's government. That's government money going into that. Uh, and no one wants to touch Medicare. That's, you know, be, that's political third rail. Everything. Now you've got 70 million people on Medicaid, which is a third of the population. Uh, so, you know, the, the government's already in control of a lot of that, a lot of health care spending, uh, a, a big chunk of it. So people and we're not really, ch- you know, we're going to try to change a little bit of Medicaid. Maybe the Democrats are fighting like like crazy against that. Uh we're we're so far from a free market healthcare system. I mean, it, it it's almost becomes laughable to talk about a free market healthcare system because I spent a little bit. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, by interrupt away. Go ahead. I've done a little bit of research also into why met, uh, um, healthcare prices are so high, and it has to do because a lot of times when a hospital wants to buy an MRI MRI machine, for example, they really can't just go to a website to ge.com or whatever and just have a list. A listed price of what the what these machines cost. I mean, I, even I worked in a laboratory, and the the company that we buy the stuff from, they kind of just gave, they give us the price based on what they think we can afford to pay. And so a lot of that has trickles down also to the consumer. There really is no open market because there's no open market on on the uh, the, the tools, the items that need that go into healthcare too. And so I think that that has a lot to do with it also. All right, Stephen California, thank you, Sir Shields High. Uh, guy in Mississippi, also WJDX. Hey, guy. Hello, Buck. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, of course, the, the healthcare uh, situation. I'm really, you know, the Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan tag team. They are really letting conservatives down. Uh, they passed a repeal of Obamacare in totality back when Obama was president. It's all been discussed before. They knew when they put on this desk who was going to veto it. Now they have control. I think 
they just need to just repeal it in totality and, and then go, instead of putting Band-Aids on the Obama disaster, because they're, they're, afraid they're making it better, but still they're not killing it. It's like Obama light. That's why Republicans in, in Congress, uh, uh, Rand Paul and others, are opposed to it because it does not do away with Obamacare. It actually puts Band-Aids on it and not just, I think it'd be better just, you know, if there's a cancer, cut it out and move forward. Kill it and then create a better health care plan instead of just putting Band-Aids on something. Yeah, Guy, guy what you're seeing here is the Republicans, they were talking tough for a long time on this, and now Republicans are scared. Uh, you know, they're scared for their jobs. I mean, they're not, they're not you know, individually scared as a result of Obamacare, but they're scared for their reelection prospects. They, they don't want to be the ones who uh, are seen as as taking away health care from people, because once people get it, they don't care if it's right or if it's constitutional or the government should or should not have given it to them. Once you give people stuff, taking it away is very hard, right? I mean, once the government has said you were legally entitled to X, to say, actually, sorry, you are not entitled to that is a very difficult thing to pull off politically. And that's that's where the Republicans are right now. Uh, and, and then... But why, why were they able to do it when Obama was president, and they had no problem with it? But now they got a problem. Yeah, well, now we're told it's all about the supermajority, and oh, they had the supermajority. But you know, that's uh, we, first of all, we we weren't told that all along that that, that we need a supermajority to get rid of this. I mean, I've I've heard people make the argument that you, through a simple majority in the reconciliation process, can get rid of whatever parts of this of Obamacare you want to. Uh, and and if now the, if the new rule is they can't do anything worth if Republicans can't do anything worthwhile without a supermajority, I mean they're just moving the goalposts on us once again. So I know I, I find it I find it frustrating too. And and why that, that it's unthinkable now to do a full repeal and and have a new bill just goes to show you that those who are warning that Obamacare is here to stay always and forever once it's passed, those those people uh, and I think I was one of them if memory serves, but uh, those people were right. Um, this is this is something that's very hard to get rid of for reasons of politics, not for reasons of economics or or healthcare delivery. I should note, guy. Thank you for calling in. Uh, that's another part of this too. It's healthcare hasn't been getting better. Everybody, you've noticed that, right? This is the un, the much under discussed part of this whole situation. It's not like healthcare has gotten a lot better. It's not like things have gotten a lot cheaper. Things are getting more expensive. Okay, so. What exactly is the benefit here? Okay, there are more people that are getting free health care from the government that's not very good, that doesn't generally keep them healthier uh, and, and give them better health outcomes than if they didn't have it. That's through Medicaid. Uh, do, do you find that you have a better – do you have a better variety of plans? I've been on uh, three health care plans in the last 12 months, everybody. So, you know. Uh, I've I've been dealing with this myself. You know, three different plans, and you know, you're, every every healthcare plan you get on, you're like, oh, okay, so that's what I'm dealing with here. <sighs> Very frustrating. Very frustrating. Um, if you want to talk about this, by all means, uh, throw uh, throw more questions our way here in the in the in the hut. Uh, but I do want to move on to the uh, both the press brief the the White House press briefing battles, and then the. A reality of the Russia collusion narrative and all this other stuff that's going on here uh, in the last 24 hours, uh, with specifically CNN, is it's been a, it's been a uh, well I, I think if, unless you're a, just a, a diehard CNN fan, it's been a rough 24 hours for CNN, and uh, we'll get into why and uh, that and much more in just a few. We'll be right back. 
Spicy in the White House briefing today, but Spicer wasn't, in fact, at the podium. It was just feisty, if you will. It was uh, a, a, a spirited exchange uh, between Sarah Huckabee Sanders and some, well, one reporter in in particular. Uh, she started off with joking with the press, asking if they wanted to, uh, well, skip questions. I know you guys are probably a little bit tired since we've been here a while. So you want to skip on the questions? <laughs> figured it was worth it. Figured it was worth a shot. She then went on to talk about CNN's barrage, as she calls it, of fake news um, and said the following. I think it's the constant barrage of fake news directed at this president, probably, that uh, has garnered a lot of his frustration. Um, you point to that report. Uh, there are multiple other instances where uh, that outlet that you referenced has been repeatedly wrong and had to point that out or be corrected. Now, this is where I, I have to uh, disagree with... Um, with some of my uh, my fellow, I, I guess they're conservative or just on the right, or some of them are just maybe centrists who are at more conservative leaning uh, institutions or networks or platforms, whatever whatever the case may be. Uh, there there seems to be this sense of okay, well, uh, CNN on the Scaramucci Russia fund story, which was the one that led to three of its reporters. Uh, resigning, I think, forced out, so, you know, gently fired. CNN corrected itself. I, I saw, what was it, Shepard Smith over at Fox News saying that uh, he viewed this as journalism. This is Journalism 101, I think, was the headline. Uh, but, there, but there are others who are taking a similar position, the position being, hey, we shouldn't be so hard on, on CNN because, well, CNN is doing is doing the right thing here by uh, disciplining its its own people. Uh, yeah, Shep, Shep Smith defends handling of CNN's handling of Rush Report. Here's the problem with that line of argument, and we're going to get into also the Project Veritas video that Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, mentioned um, on uh, in, in this press conference. And I thought we had the like part where it. Uh, oh no, we do. Wait, wait. Bef before I get into Veritas and. And all that stuff. I wanted. This is where things get uh, inflammatory. Here's a reporter challenging Sarah Huckabee Sanders. People in this room, but news outlets get to go on day after day and cite unnamed sources, use uh, stories without sources. Have uh, you know? You mentioned the Scaramucci story where they had to have reporters resign. Come on, you're inflaming everybody right here, right now with those words. You, you, this administration has done that as well. Why, in the name of heavens, any one of us, right, are replaceable, and any one of us, if we don't get it right, the audience has the opportunity to turn the channel or not read us. I think I you think have been elected to serve for four years at least. There's no option other than that. 
We're here I think, to ask you questions. Right. You're here to provide the answers. And what you just did is inflammatory to people all over the country who look at it and say, see, once again, the president is right and everybody else out here is fake media. And everybody in this room is only trying to do their job. Well, and, I, and I just I, I disagree completely. First of all, I think if anything has been inflamed, uh, it's the dishonesty that often takes place by the news media. And I think it is outrageous for you to uh, accuse me of inflaming a story when I was simply trying to respond to his question. Sarah Huckabee Sanders doesn't doesn't back down. Got to got to give her credit uh, and and handles handles it handles the heat uh, well. I think, um, but this is. So, by the way, there you have it. You have a reporter being uh, sanctimonious and going for his viral moment, talking about how this isn't about the reporters. You know, this is about getting getting answers for the American people. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, sure. Uh, and, and I've been watching these press conferences and the the tone and the approach on both sides, granted, but the the tone from the media as well as from the administration is one of uh, of casual derision, of hostility of constantly trying to undermine and challenge everything that's coming out of this White House. So they're not they're not fools. Uh, they understand it. And well, both sides understand it. But, you know, you, you, now I want to get into the CNN thing. You have two big CNN stories that that tie into the whole fake news narrative thing from the last 24 hours. You have on the uh, one side, the Scaramucci Russia completely retracted, completely false CNN story. Three reporters lost their jobs. There are people saying, oh, look, that is an example of CNN doing the right thing. Hmm. Okay. Well, let me, let's put a pin in that. I, I, I will come back to, is CNN doing the right thing here or something else at work? Then you also have an undercover video of a CNN employee from Project Veritas. And I will say to you, um, as somebody who was formerly a CNN employee, I think I have a slightly different take on the Veritas video. No, a, a pretty different take on the Veritas videos than a lot of other conservatives, uh, because yet there, there's the content of what is said, and then there's also the way in which the content was, uh, the way that the content is being treated and and how it was obtained. And I, I have, I ha let's just say I have some thoughts on these things. I uh, see we have a lot of lines lit up, and I very much appreciate that. I want to hear your voice here too in the Freedom Hunt. So. If you're on hold, please do stay with us. If you want to join in the fun, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. The uh, media's war with the White House and the White House's war with the media. That coming up. online too you can hang out with team buck anytime plus get buck's latest news and analysis go to bucksexton.com that's bucksexton.com the buck is back whenever one wants to make a claim of bias whether it's uh, bias in reporting in, in the media or uh, bias within an organization you, you usually look for a pattern right because a, an incident in isolation uh, unless it's extreme or it's at the very top, an incident in isolation is not often enough for uh, there to be a, a clear indication of a narrative. What I mean by this is, you know, if a media organization, if they have one reporter who runs a, a story out of, you know, out of nowhere with fake news, and, you know, the New York Times years ago had a guy who was just making up stories, the New Republic, uh, which sort of started as America's socialist town hall, um, or communist town hall, well, whatever, close enough. 
uh, Marxist town hall. There we go. Uh, had a guy uh, years, decades, a few decades ago who also was just making up stories. So that's that can happen, right? You have one reporter goes rogue, makes up stories. Okay, fine. And one retracted story does not mean that an organization is necessarily uh, systematically, systemically uh, corrupted with a political agenda. Of course, right? People make mistakes. Every news site, every newspaper, everyone makes mistakes. A full retraction on a story is unusual, um, but it happens. But a retraction that falls into a much broader pattern of suspect reporting, that then changes, right? This then, this, this is the, the context of it. This is, is this, like I said, an, an incident in isolation? Or is it an incident that illustrates a much larger trend? Can you distill, can you take away from this a much bigger narrative? And this is where we now have to look at what hap- what's happened with CNN, right? with, with that in mind. Because the immediate defense that you'll hear is uh, that this is not that this is not indicative of broader practices. And I'm even hearing people say that CNN did the right thing here, as though this is just comes out of nowhere. Uh, you had uh, a, a Wall Street Journal associate editor speaking to Shepard Smith over at Fox. And uh, this is what you want to have happen. Right. Uh, Boosie said you want to have a news organization when they finally got something wrong that didn't go through their process properly, to retract it and publicly state we made a mistake. Smith agreed. Quote, it's like Shepard Smith. Uh, It's like an example of how to do it. If you make a mistake, Journalism 101 says you admit your mistake, you correct it immediately, and you take corrective action. This This is really poor analysis of the situation. Okay, let me explain why. Uh, This is really borderline nonsense. Uh, First of all, they're they're talking about this as though it was an issue of of, an issue of factual error when it was a discarding of basic journalistic practices. Okay, so start with that. Also add to it that this was it wasn't enough to just correct or even retract the story. People got fired because of this. So it was clearly egregious violations of protocol. But why was it so egregious? I think the real sin of these journalists who got the boot from CNN was not so much that they cast off their journalistic practices. I think it's that they gave up the game here. They show, th- Now people can point and say, see, those of us who are paying attention to being honest can point at this, as we are doing right now, and say, see, they are just going with anything they can to hurt the administration. And that's where the sloppiness comes from. That's why they were so sloppy. And so that's the the, the betrayal uh, that these journalists in in the eyes of their uh, employer, CNN, if there's any betrayal, it's that they betrayed the reality of what's going on inside the organization day in and day out so egregiously that no one can deny it because the story was so flimsy and so false. And that makes it now harder to do the whole Continued questions about the about the Trump Russia collusion uh, situation. More questions being asked about the Trump Russia collusion situation. I mean, th- this is the th- the question becomes the headlining story somehow every night, right? You know, and the, and by the way, look at what they get wrong. Look at the retractions recently from the CNN, the Washington Post, the New York Times. They somehow are only having to retract major stories on this issue. 
They're only sloppy and heedless of journalistic standards, it would seem, on this issue. Why is that? At what point does that sloppiness, does that, does that record of, of continued and, and frequent, comparatively speaking, failure begin to tell us something about a broader mentality that is at work at the network? I think we're already there, right? But what was the m- more recently uh, or, or right before this happened with the, with the story about Scaramucci and the Russian fund that was complete nonsense? And, you know, Scaramucci was a, a class act about it and just said he'll move on. But, you know, the rest of us don't have to ignore this. We're allowed to take lessons from this. Uh, he's moving on personally, which is fine. And, and, and that's, you know, he's a, he's a good dude. But. You you look at what was before this. There were these. There was the CNN story. It was a whole night. The major story on the uh, on the primetime shows was how uh, Comey was going to testify that Trump that he did not tell Trump three times he was not under investigation. That was completely false. He did testify. He he did end up testifying that Trump. He told Trump three times he was not under investigation. And and then go before that. Look at stories about Russia and Trump and. Uh, you know, wh- whether it is uh, reporters saying that Trump m- removed the bust of Martin Luther King to stories about a Russian hacking of the Vermont power grid that never occurred to a to stories about the influence of Russian bots on the election based on unsourced and even anonymous analysis done by a, a firm that nobody even did any backstory and looking up who they were as their main source for a Washington Post piece. I mean, they're making all these mistakes in this area. Why do we think that is? Healthcare is complicated. They're not doing a lot of healthcare retractions. Immigration is contentious and complicated. Not, not a lot of retractions there. Why have there been completely false, fake stories on these issues, which are all interconnected? You can say, well, Buck, it's just a it's just a a, a velocity and frequency issue, meaning that there's so much of a push to get these stories out, and there are so many of these stories that there will be more mistakes. I think you're giving a lot of credit to the media organizations with that. And then you'd also have to ask, well, if the if the facts aren't are, you know, are the facts aren't pushing that, meaning that, you know, if they are having to uh, conjure up sources that are not so good, why are they telling these stories? Right. What's why is there that velocity to use the, the term that I just put forward a second ago here? Why is there that need to run these stories? And that's where we get into this Project Veritas video. Um, this was an undercover video from Project Veritas, which is James O'Keefe's outfit, where they did an undercover video of a CNN producer. And uh, we will play some of that audio for you right now. I mean, it's mostly right now. Like, we don't have any big, giant proof. I just feel like they don't really have it, but they, they want to keep digging. Mm-hmm. And so I think the president is probably right to say, like, look, you are witch hunting me. Like, you have no smoking gun. You have no real proof. And the CEO of CNN said in our internal meeting, he said, good job, everybody, covering the climate accords. But we're done with it. Let's get back to Russia. (laughs) Now, here's my sense of this. This uh, individual... um, was speaking um, about his own feelings about what's going on there. Now, I, I think that what he says is much more 
widely held in terms of belief within the newsroom at CNN and elsewhere. I, I think that that's that's very clear. Um, and I I know of I know of people who said you know that there were tears shed and clapping when o- when Obama you know won the election and then won re-election right in the CNN newsroom. I mean so so this is not any same at MSNBC I'm sure right. I mean no, no surprise. Come on Let, let's let's all. We're going to be big boys and big girls about this, and we all know this. You know this, I know this. Okay. So this guy is articulating on camera, not knowing he's on camera, uh, what what we believe to be, and I think I would I would challenge anyone uh, who would want to say otherwise, is an operating assumption among a lot of people at CNN. Um, but this guy's actually being honest about it, which I think is interesting. I mean, he's he's saying that, yeah, you know, I think there's not that much there, but they're running with it. His the only part about this that I start to have a, a, a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of, you know, is, do we really want this isn't some big this isn't some big, uh, big cheese over at CNN. OK, this is not some person who's making huge decisions about coverage. This isn't you know, this isn't Anderson Cooper. This isn't Jeff Zucker. This isn't a major figure in what is a vast organization. I mean, CNN is huge. A lot of employees. So. Okay, he's one person, he's sharing his opinion, and it reflects what I think we all believe to be broader opinion inside CNN. But, you know, this for me, this is a little, it's a little more borderline than some folks are saying in the sense that I think it's, yeah, it's 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 bad. I mean, what he's saying is what we believe, and it's bad. But it, this is just one guy. Now we can start to say, well, is this in isolation or is this broader? I think that the the narrative, we already know what the feeling is based on the news coverage night in and night out, what the anchors are saying, how they treat pro-Trump guests. I mean, you know, the whole story is already there. This one guy saying it, okay, it's a, it's a data point. I'm not, dis, I'm not discounting it. I'm just saying it's, it's not like he's got Jeff Zucker here on video saying this. And, his, and by the way, his statement about Zucker, who's the CEO of CNN, that he said, okay, great job on that. Let's go back to Russia. Well, maybe they're, you know— Maybe there was a Russia story that day. I mean, you know, that, that's that's not as and I people and I know no one ever wants to hear when I'm like not on board the you know rawr, conservative radio yelling about it. they're terrible. I mean, I've been doing a lot of that already this hour, but I, I try to bring some nuance to the game, folks. I try to tell you what I really think and not just what I think people always want to hear all the time. Uh, and I, I think you'll you'll also some of you at least will agree with me that you know this. I I don't really like the uh, I mean think about this another way do we really want pretty lo- uh, a low level employee or lower level employee at at you know at uh, another news organization think of one you like to be asked in an off camera moment something uh, about you know what they think of the network's cover I mean this guy might lose his job now you know there there are consequences for this. And he he was speaking in good faith to someone. I'm just not comfortable with the I'm going to start recording people in private conversations unless there's really good reason. And for me, this is a, this is yeah, it's a little borderline. And I know some of you would disagree with me on that. That's fine. But this isn't a senior executive at CNN. This isn't a major anchor, not a major reporter. There's just a guy who's a producer who uh, and, and I think he's saying what a lot of them believe there. Don't don't get me wrong. But you know, there's there's a consequence here. This guy's probably, I mean, I don't know, maybe he won't. But I mean, it's it's certainly embarrassing for him. He might get fired, and he's like speaking the truth off camera here about what he thinks is going on. So you know, wh- why does he get to be the, uh, <laughs> the the sacrificial lamb here, right? I mean, why is he the one that's 
you know, telling us really what we already know. So I, I feel bad for this guy, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, I mean, now, look, I, I've only watched the clip. I haven't watched the whole documentary. Maybe he says more, you know, inflammatory bad stuff. But just based on the clip that I played for you, which is what I've heard so far, uh, and what everyone's focusing so much attention on about the coverage, um, you know, I, I don't think you could say that he's representative of the whole news organization is the bottom line. And, uh, you know, I, I also am just... And, and I should, and now as I'm saying this out loud, I should listen to the entirety of the exchange. And I am now apologizing in real time as I say this to you because I listened to the clip and not the whole thing. Um, but, you know, going in and taping somebody for their political opinions inside a news organization and then broadcasting it out there, that's that's kind of rough. I've been in a lot of green rooms with a lot of folks. And, uh, you know, if, I, if you started just pulling out the microphone you'd catch people saying things that might get them fired and might be interesting, but I, I would never do that. So I, I think it's a, it's, you know, th- that's just a thought to keep in mind. That's all I'm saying there. But on the other thing about the news story, I mean, that for me is the much bigger issue here. The much bigger piece of this whole uh, situation is the, um, the news story that had to be retracted because that's where you see that's where you already have the what this guy's telling you. You already know from that what what he says in that clip, you're already aware of from what's been going on. So I don't know how much it really adds to the discussion. It's another data point. Okay, fine. I know we've got every line that's led. People might want to disagree with me on this. Well, at least part of it. I understand. Uh, let's hit a break and we'll come right back to him. Uh, stay with me. Go to uh, some callers here. Uh, Roger in uh, Delaware. What's up, Roger? Hi, Buck. Uh, well, it just went away in, um, you know, the, the hypocrisy of uh, uh, John McCain and his other buddy there from uh, Carolinas. Uh, uh, some years ago, uh, they're talking about crossing the aisle. You know, cross, oh, we got to cross the aisle. Oh, God, we got to get along, you know. I don't see any of his buddies, Democrats, crossing the aisle to help out with the health care. Nope. Demo- Demo- you'll notice Democrats do not defect. Republicans should pay more attention and learn a lesson here. Democrats do not. Uh, so you can you got to give them credit for that. And I, I think maybe uh, uh, McCain and, and the other guy uh, ought, to, ought to have that tail pinned on the uh, donkey, you know, at this particular time. Uh, you know, they're such big advocates of crossing the aisle, but— they're crossing the aisle is uh, just uh, one way, as I see it. All right. Well, Roger, up on WILM, thanks for calling in. And uh, we have uh, Michael in North Carolina on WGNC. What's up, Michael? Oh, uh, yes. How you doing, Buck? I just wanted to say thank you, sir, and a good job that you're doing for us. Thank you. I just want to make a quick statement. Fake news is fake news. We all know it when we see it. We see what's going on, the bias with the media against my president, Mr. Trump. And a quick uh, note, I think people have forgotten that Medicaid is a welfare uh, program. It was never meant to serve as many people as it served. And it was meant for the neediest of the neediest and the poorest of the poorest. And me being an old person, I'm not stupid. I have to realize that pre-existing conditions, that's on me. We can't afford to cover uh, people with pre-existing conditions. I feel for kids. I feel for babies. I feel for old people. But I have to work for a living. Us taxpayers have to pay this. You can't buy a Mercedes-Benz and total it and call the insurance company and tell them, I got a brand new Mercedes-Benz, and you're going to cover it. 
And by the way, I told them about five minutes ago. Okay, no problem, on Mr. Wim. We got well, well, Michael. I, I agree with you on the Mercedes Benz point in that we, we don't really have insurance now. We just have uh, people that want increasingly uh, I- increasing levels of, of government subsidy for health care at at really at most levels. Um, and on the point about pre-existing conditions, I, we actually could handle pre-existing conditions as a separate category in the market in, in states, uh, but pre-existing conditions have been used as an emotional tool when dealing with the public to force everyone into these, you know, to force everyone to be in the same exchanges in the individual market. And that has tremendous costs. I mean, to your point about the taxpayer, yeah, the taxpayers are on the hook for all this. And, you know, I, I guess we we just still don't have any discussions about the debt and the deficit, really, uh, or at least not any meaningful ones. Um, and eventually we're going to, we're going to have spent too much money. I don't know when we're there. We're at 20 trillion, maybe it's at 30 trillion, but you know, we're, we're heading there. We don't have it, sir. We don't, we don't have it. No, it's it's not insurance. It's, 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 it's subsidized care. It's, it's taxpayer funded care. Michael, thank you for calling in Lisa in California. I heart out. What's up, Lisa? Hi, go team back. How are you? Good. Thanks, Lisa. What's up? Good. Well, you've been all over the place since I called in, so I'm just going to make one comment and another comment. First, I like Sarah Huckabee Sanders because she's the most professional. She doesn't get down into the emotional weeds, and she's the most professional person we've had in the White House since Tony Snow. Okay. Personally, I just think that. Secondly, on the health care debate. Um, we got 60 seconds, Lisa. Go ahead. Under Queen Victoria, they had something called the deserving poor and undeserving poor. If you were a widow with six kids and your husband had died in the war, you were deserving poor and you got free benefits from the government. If you were somebody who had six kids from six different fathers, then you had to get it from, from private industry. We need more private industry stepping up to pay for the free health care. Well, we need people who work in private industry to be paying for their yeah. paying for health care, but absolutely yeah no I, I hear you lisa thanks for thanks for calling in um i'm uh, yeah I, like I, I i think ron johnson was was hitting on it before uh with we we need to be honest and courageous when talking about health care if not we're not even going to diagnose the shortcomings of our effort to improve on obamacare um properly so that's that's where we are on all this uh we're going to talk to a friend of mine uh, about the healthcare bill and expert and then we're going to talk about national security in syria and then third hour a whole bunch of other stuff so uh stay with me the freedom hut rocks online too you can hang out with team buck anytime plus get buck's latest news and analysis go to bucksexton.com buck Sexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. All right, everybody, let's talk health care with a policy wonk. We've got Lonnie Chen on the line. He's a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and a lecturer at Stanford University. He was an advisor to Senator Marco Rubio's 2016 presidential campaign. Great to have you, Lonnie. Hey, Buck, good to be back with you, too. All right. Uh, we know that the Senate's not going to be voting on this until after the 4th of July recess, but we have the broad strokes of where the Senate bill, the Senate health care bill is right now. What do you what are just your, your overall thoughts about this based on expectations, you know, what we've been told in the past and where we're supposed to go? Go ahead. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm obviously disappointed that we're not going to get to a vote this week. I, I actually think that the Senate bill does a lot of good things that 
Uh, it definitely expands the amount of assistance available to low-income people to help them purchase health insurance. It does the market deregulation, gives states more power. And ultimately, you know, the, the big thing I think it does is it really reforms an entitlement program uh, in, in the form of Medicaid, which needs to be reformed. But, you know, uh, the, the, vote, the votes weren't there. The support wasn't there to, to get this done now. So uh, we want to live this fight another day, and hopefully over the next couple of weeks, uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, can work with others in his uh, chamber to improve the legislation. And, and that's the best outcome we can hope for. Now, to those on the conservative side, and, and obviously there are some senators who are voicing this, uh, Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, uh, uh, Johnson out of uh, Wisconsin, um, those who are saying that this is not a repeal, uh, do we just need to all accept that re- repeal is not going to not going to happen at this phase and this is this is the best that we can expect? Or is repeal eventually supposed to happen? I mean, where where should the uh, the, the voters within the Republican Party, where should they be on this or what should rather what should they be yeah. told at this point by their by their leadership? Well, I, you know, I, I hate to be semantic about it, but it depends on what the definition of repeal is, you know, because here's the thing. Uh, we would all love to be able to write a bill that just says is it- Obamacare is repealed. And, and you know, that would be the, the easy way to do it. Unfortunately, uh, that's not possible because of the fact that there are only 52 Republican senators uh, and they don't have enough to make up a supermajority. And so as a result, we've got to go to a different method. They're using this uh, legislative me- method known as budget reconciliation, kind of complicated and arcade, but basically what it boils down to is they can advance a piece of legislation that's budget-related and have to meet certain rules, and they only need 51 votes. So that's what they're trying to do. But that also means that they're limited in terms of how much of Obamacare they can get rid of. So the argument I've made is, look, I think Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans are doing everything they can to repeal as much of Obamacare as they can. We need to give them the benefit of the doubt on that. But going forward, it's going to be important for conservatives to really say, look, if, if, if we don't like Obamacare, What's the alternative we do like? Because we've got to get to yes here. The status quo is unacceptable. And so uh, you're saying that really we should have been told all along that if you really if we wanted a, a full on repeal, and I know you said it depends on what repeal means, but if it was going to go back to the healthcare system a- anti Obamacare, right, be- before Obamacare had ever happened, uh, then we would have needed a supermajority. So I think some folks feel like that's a little bit of a bait and switch, right? <laughs> that wasn't. We weren't yeah. told. Well, you know, we'll get to a supermajority, and and then you'll be you'll have repeal. We had all those repeal votes and said. But I get it. People will argue that that was necessary to keep the base. I don't know, energized and. Politics is the art of the possible. Okay, fine. What? And by the way, everyone, we're speaking to Lonnie Chen. He's a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, lecturer at Stanford University. Lonnie, what, what is it for those listening who are like, look, my my premiums have been going up, access to healthcare. Uh, is not getting better. Forget about coverage. The actual access to healthcare is not getting better. Everything's getting more expensive, and it just feels like there's more regulations than red tape. What is there to be happy about in this? For, I mean, I know we could talk about the budgets and Medicaid and long-term projections of that, but I mean for somebody, if the Senate bill were to pass, get signed, and become law within a month, what would people have to look forward to within a matter of months, not, well, in 2026, we're going to have some real Medicaid savings? Yeah. I mean, this is one of the challenges is that a lot of what the Senate bill does, the, the benefits of it don't really uh, come to pass for, you know, five, seven, ten years. So, you know, oh, the it came out, yeah, this report, and, and that's part of the reason why they're having a tough time selling it. You know, in, in, in the, the uh, report that came out from this office called the Congressional Budget Office that looks at legislation and tries to determine. Oh, no, we know all about the CBO. And, you know, depending on yeah. the day, the CBO, the media says the CBO is brilliant or the CBO is worthless. It, it depends on what they say. 
Yeah, well, and, and, I, and I think that's, that's, you know, essentially the assessment of most people as well. But if you look at what CBO has said about this thing, you know, they said, look, premiums will come down, but it's going to take a few years. In the short run, we're going to see more market instability. Now, why is that? Because Obamacare caused a lot of it. It's going to be very difficult to unwind that mess. But one thing I will say is in the short run, what you are going to see is you are going to see hopefully some states taking the lead in crafting some healthcare solutions that work for their state. You've got a state like Alaska, for example, that was suffering under huge Obamacare premium increases, and they came up with some great ideas, some really thoughtful ways to reduce premiums. And that's the kind of activity that I do think the Senate bill will incentivize, and I think we'll start to see some of the results from that very, very quickly. All right, Lonnie Chen, research fellow at the Hoover Institute and lecturer at Stanford University. Lonnie, thanks so much for making the time. We appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Buck. Oh man, I was I was really uh, hoping that um, gonna, that uh, Lonnie was going to give me something short term impact. You see, th- this is part of the problem. If you're going to look at a projection of what is going to be good about this in ten years, uh, you, you notice how the Democrats did it. And I don't like to be the guy who's pointing at what the Democrats do and say, "See, see, they're smart about how they push this stuff through." Yes, they had a supermajority. I get that too. Understand. But the sweets, the goodies, the stuff to get excited about for Obamacare came right away. In fact, that was all they talked about, really. Right. Yeah, there was the broad stroke stuff about more coverage, better care, cheaper care. But that was all, you know, uh, that was all the the generalized speaking of a uh, generalized discussion about what was going on with Obamacare. Uh, the stay on your parents insurance to 26 and the pre-existing conditions provisions those were immediate. And also, by the way, parity for mental health issues. Uh, th- that w- those were immediate parts of Obamacare once it was passed. Or you know, when I say immediate, I mean that was all going to be happening very, very quickly. And so people saw the, the good side of it. The bad stuff was all back, uh, back-ended, right? The bad, the bad stuff was all um, pushed, towards the, pushed towards the back of the timetable so that by the time we figure out that you're going to have failing exchanges and you know your death spirals for the exchanges all those problems because just monetarily speaking this was going to be much more expensive much more inefficient and just worse than we were promised it would already be enacted and dif- more difficult to extricate ourselves from this yeah so i mean this is this is what we're dealing with now republicans are trying to sell us on medicaid savings from 2026 and you know, okay, states might have some slightly better ideas than what we've seen in recent years uh, from the federal government side of under Obamacare, but I- I'm not sure you could argue this is the most compelling stuff for the Republicans to be selling this bill right now. I, and I'm, I, look, I want to be a believer, everybody. You know, I want to, I want to be throwing on a, a, a MAGA hat on this one too. I want to be high fiving Mitch McConnell, but I got to feel it, and I, I can't fake it. So. We'll, we'll see how this goes. We've got a few more days to talk about it because they're not going to vote on it right now. Hitting a break here, team. We'll be back in a few. Stay with me. All right, everybody, let's talk some national security here. We are joined by our friend Tom Rogan. He is a columnist at the Washington Examiner. His latest is the Trump administration is right to threaten Assad against using chemical weapons again. Tom, uh, great to have you, Trump. Good to be with you, Buck. Thanks for having me on. Uh, So tell me about uh, the latest here with the administration and uh, these possible preparations for a Syrian chemical attack. Yeah, so what we heard was kind of out of the blue as the White House suggesting that they had received intelligence indicating 
that the Syrians were moving people and equipment uh, in preparation for uh, a possible chemical weapons attack. And so some of the uh, possibilities there behind the details that we would have been able to expect based on uh, what was clearly an intelligence reporting would be either the mixing of precursor chemicals. Uh, they don't do that until late on so as to avoid um, the notion that they have stockpiled chemical weapons. It's harder to detect, uh, but also the staging of aircraft um, alongside the delivery of those chemicals. So, we, you know, I think that the key point here would be that they probably saw things coming together towards, uh, you know, an airfield, that uh, that suggested to them that an attack was uh, very likely in the coming days. What do you think about the reaction and response uh, now that we've had some time pass uh, between the, the last chemical weapons attack and the Trump administration uh, firing off a, a salvo of, of missiles in response to that, following through on the red line that had been previously established by President Obama, which he did not follow through on. Uh, do, but do you think that, well, let me ask you, what do you think the consequences of that have been? Do you think it has changed much? Do you think it has changed uh, the Assad regime's actions in Syria? Well, look, I mean, it's certainly, they haven't done it since. Um, and they were doing it with quite a lot of regularity. And I think, though, and, and I said it at the time, that it was very likely there would be a follow-up attack because especially President Putin, but uh, Assad as well, wanting to see the U.S. commitment. Was this just a one-off? Uh, and that could they, as they did with President Obama consistently, uh, out-escalate the United States, which is to say, could they have that one attack um, that Trump would respond in a limited fashion as he did. But then when it came to a second attack and the, you know, the ante raised, um, would, would Trump back down? And so I, I always thought this was likely, but at the moment, uh, I think, you know, Trump has done a very good job in terms of effectively deterring uh, their activity. And, and I thought this response by the White House, very public, instead of through diplomatic back channels, uh, and very unequivocal uh, in the sense of, um, you know, you will pay the price if you do this. Uh, you know, a heavy price, uh, quote, that is the right thing to do. And I think it, you know, we, we shall see what happens. What do you think about the campaign right now uh, to defeat ISIS uh, using proxies on the ground in Syria? W what's the latest with that? How close are they to taking uh, Raqqa or beginning the main hostilities to take the city, the capital city of the Islamic State away from it? Uh, how is that effort going? Well, they, they've made a lot of progress. And, I mean, if you look at where they are, they're already, um, you know, in the outer suburbs of the city. Um, the city is basically now totally surrounded. Um, so it will be taken. But the important point to remember, I think, is that ISIS has removed a lot of its top fighters uh, in terms of commanders, uh, operational planners for European, Western operations um, down the Euphrates River Valley. Uh, towards Al Qaeda, they're still mostly on the on the Syrian side of the border because they have greater security there. Uh, but the threat is not going away. But 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 the operation in terms of retaking Raqqa, yeah, it's making a lot of progress. I think the the secondary point there, though, is that we are heavily relying on Kurdish forces, uh, and you know when Raqqa is retaken, there will be, unless the United States you know, plays a balancing role, a lot of sectarian tensions between the Kurds who have their own territorial interests and the Syrian Arab population uh, that lives in that area. So it, it's, a, uh, it, it's, it's a complicated one, um, even if in, in the moment um, it's positive that we're seeing, you know, forward momentum towards the city falling out of ISIS hands.
We're speaking to Tom Rogan. He is a columnist, a columnist at the Washington Examiner. He's got a piece there. The Trump administration is right to threaten Assad against using chemical weapons again. Uh, Tom, I want to switch gears to uh, Afghanistan. Uh, do, what do you think about the administration's uh, current movements and, and what look like preparations for in, enhancing the U.S. military presence? Uh, do you think that I, I know we're supposed to hear in the weeks ahead about a, a change at, or at least whatever the administration's strategy is officially. Uh, but what are your what are your thoughts on where all that is going right now? Well, I think what we're seeing, I mean, um, Secretary Mattis, Defense Secretary, said, I believe, last week or the week before in congressional testimony that um, President Trump had deferred troop deployment levels to him. Uh, I think that's a positive thing. Uh, we had an editorial at the Examiner suggesting that, that why we thought it was positive. But the, the main point is that Mattis is a, a realist uh, who I think is cognizant of the failings in our strategy up until now, the limitations in what we can do unless we're willing, which I don't think we are and which we should not be, to put tens of thousands more troops back in there, um, but, but, but also recognizes that the Obama administration's approach of sort of withdrawals on a political timetable to please move on.org and his museum exhibits was not a good way to wage effective um, counterinsurgency in Afghanistan. So the, the, the critical issue is having enough forces there, which we don't at the moment, to be able to provide the intelligence, logistics, aviation support to the Afghan security forces, um, but also the force presence that they would need over the longer term to maintain uh, control of the major cities and build uh, in that sort of old ink, ink blot. Do you think it's a fair criticism, though? That's effectively a holding pattern with what the strategy has already been for the last, oh, many years, I don't know where we would even peg the, the, the start of that strategy too, but creating durable Afghan institutions, military and, and police and, and governance, uh, letting them stand up and fight on their own, training them, assisting them, helping them on the way to that, that's been the strategy for a long time. So does, do you see any real change or you just, do you think that the idea here is to just do it a little better and give it a little more time? Well, I think the change is that, that we are not, for example, I, I think it would be very unlikely that we would see, um, you know, a massive redeployment of you know, ground forces into places like Kalman province or uh, some of the provinces in eastern Afghanistan. I think there is a recognition that those areas will essentially be, you know, controlled by the Taliban to some degree and that it, it, you will act in a way that seeks to give the Afghans an ability to retake the major population centers. Um, but broadly, look, I mean, yes, there is this, the, you know, it takes a long time to get a functioning government up and running and, and credible institutions. And I think if we look at the, the perspective of history in Afghanistan, actually, as much as a lot of people might think more should have been done by now, and quite frankly, it could have been, um, 16 years since 2001 when we first went in is not that much time when you think about the absence of institutions uh, and, and institutional culture. And so hopefully with this, it's that idea that by having this, uh, this it's not simply about having a few more forces there that enable you to do things better. Uh, it's also about the ability of those forces to give confidence to Afghan politicians that the United States is not going anytime soon, that we are there in some fashion for the long term. And so, you know, the counter uh, 
the countervailing perspective to, to what President Obama did in withdrawing U.S. forces from Iraq in late 2011. Uh, and then the problems that that created in terms of saying to Iraqi politicians, well, the Americans are gone, uh, so we better just do whatever the Iranians want, because otherwise they're going to blow us up. Um, and, and so that, I mean, those political dynamics matter greatly in terms of what uh, a, a, a formative uh, military pr- presence does. Just one more for you, Tom, before we got to go into a break here. Uh, do you think that a negotiated peace uh, agreement with the Taliban, some kind of power-sharing agreement with the Taliban, is an acceptable, acceptable way to end this conflict? Yes, to some degree, and it will have to be that. Um, but but it will have to be that on the basis that the Taliban do not believe, uh, come to the understanding that they're not going to be able to destroy Afghan democracy uh, or hold uh, power in, um, you know, again, in major population centers. What you will see, though, I think, is a recognition. You've already seen this in places like Musakala and, and Helmand, that the, the Taliban have to appreciate the fact that Afghans have become accustomed, even in the Pashtun areas, um, to, you know, having schools and stuff. And so there is a, it's about separating those elements of the Taliban that are realist and can be brought to the table uh, from the hardliners. And, and fortunately, to some degree, if you can say that, ISIS uh, arrival in Afghanistan has actually sucked away that some of those hardline elements. But yes, you, you know, diplomacy I, I think is practical, but we can we have to do it from a position of strength. All right, Tom Rogan of the Washington Examiner. Thank you very much, sir. Great to have you as always. Thanks, Buck. Team, we're going to hit a quick break. We'll be back in a few. Stay with me. Buck is. Hey, everybody, Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. 1-844-900-BUCK. That's 1-844-900-2825. Former President Obama, the ultra-elitist globetrotter. Not surprising to uh, any of you uh, who have been uh, watching and, and reading the news recently. You've been treated to a steady stream of... Obama kite surfing, Obama hanging with Richard Branson, uh, Obama on $100 million yachts. Uh, now, th- this is continuing on. It's going for, going for, uh, for six months here. Uh, and I, I know they're immediately from the press, because they still are very defensive of, of Obama and his legacy, they'd say, you know, wh- what difference does it make to anyone about what the former president does in terms of his vacations? A couple of things. First of all, uh, Obama's going to be around and in, and intruding, involving, depending on how you want to see it, uh, on the political debate, involving himself in it uh, for decades to come. Uh, president, he no longer has the title of president. He's former President Obama, uh, but he still commands tremendous clout in the Democratic Party. And I, I think you could argue, in fact, that because Hillary Clinton and the Clinton brand is so tarnished that, at a minimum, the Obama brand has to be a placeholder in the Democratic Party, and maybe he's even kingmaker in the Democratic Party until they're able to bring someone else up. And I know people say Elizabeth Warren or maybe Bernie Sanders again, but they I, I don't think that's going to—I think Sanders will be too old, plus he's got a problem with the FBI investigation right now. Who knows where that will go? Uh, Warren just doesn't have the charisma. It's just not a— national level figure. She's plagued by many of the same problems that Hillary had as a candidate. So that they need to bring up a a celebrity Democrat. Now that's either someone like Obama, who 
is is a celebrity before having a fame, you know, creates a famous political last name. And look, give the guy credit for that. At least, at least, you know, you can say a lot about Obama, but he was the first Obama. I mean, he, he wasn't, oh, I'm a Kennedy vote for me or oh, I'm a Clinton vote for me. And there's a lot of that, a lot of a lot of dynasty upholding and dynasty coddling within the Democratic Party. And yes, within the Republican Party, too. Jeb! Uh, but. I think it's less pronounced, although this is a this is an area of bipartisan criticism that I will level. I do not like uh, I do not like political dynasties. And I also do not like nepotism, which is a problem for the current administration. But I digress. Uh, but they are looking at Obama right now, I think, as the figurehead of the Democratic Party. He's almost a president in exile in a sense. You know, he weighed in on the uh, health care debate which I assume is also particularly personal for the former president, given that the health care law that Republicans are seeking to change right now bears his name, at least in common parlance. I know people say it's the Affordable Care Act. Well, OK, yeah, everyone calls everyone calls it Obamacare. I mean, you, you can be the one person who calls it the Affordable Care Act among your friends, but everyone calls it Obamacare. But he weighed in very, uh, very clearly on that one. I mean, very uh, explicitly. He wrote that our politics are divided. They have been for a long time. And while I know that division makes it difficult to listen to Americans with whom we disagree, that's what we need to do today. By the way, that was what he wrote on Facebook about the uh, health care, about the health care bill that the Republicans were trying to uh, get on the same page. And I, mean, I know they've delayed now. The senators have delayed till after. I knew they would till after Fourth of July. Um, but that's the classic Obamaism. You know, I'm I'm above politics. I'm post I'm post partisan. Uh, and now let me bash the political opposition. This is, it was one of the most common and unfortunately most effective uh, methods of Obama's debate and, and Obama's rhetoric. Uh, it wasn't really debate, more rhetoric, but in his speeches it would always be, you know, some people um, aren't about coming together, are not about working together, and they're not about being bipartisan. Um, we should all be bipartisan. That's why Republicans are terrible. I mean, it was something along those lines, right? That was a simplification, but not really that much of a simplification because it would usually go along those lines. Uh, but Obama is still very much a figure in national politics in this country. He is given tremendous deference and respect by the press. Um, and when he weighs in on a subject, there's it's it makes immediate news. And you have this former president who is living this uh, this lifestyle right now of just incredible jet setting, literally jet setting. Right. I mean, he's traveling everywhere on private jets and on super yachts and hanging out with celebrities uh, of all of all kinds from, you know, the, the, the most including the most wealthy and connected people in the world. Uh, and, you know, of course, Fox News has pulled together a list of some of what he's done. Obama, this is from their site, Obama has visited late actor Marlon Brando's private island. Uh, the Four Seasons in Bali, where rooms cost upward of $2,000 a night. A Palm Springs estate. Sir Richard Branson's Necker Island. The exclusive Mid-Pacific Country Club in Oahu. The 13th century Borgo Finocchietta in Tuscany. And the rising sun, Hollywood studio mogul David Geffen's private yacht. So Obama is obviously enjoying his time out of office. And look, the guy was president for eight years. Uh, clearly, it's a stressful job. 
I don't I don't begrudge anybody their free time and what they what the free market will bear in terms of where they want to spend their money. And that's all fine. But I do think that this is a reminder uh, uh, and really further evidence of the thesis that some of us were uh, sharing and expounding on and and uh, well, putting forward for a number of years. And that is that Obama is truly a, a celebrity president. And now. Obviously, Donald Trump is as well. So let's just get that out there right away. But there was always this pretense that Obama was uh, the, the brilliant philosopher professor president. And I never saw any real evidence of that based on his time in office. Uh, the guy can give a good prepared speech. I think he was very you know mediocre to weak in debate, not particularly good on his feet, uh, not an impressive extemporaneous speaker. Good at giving a prepared speech, uh, does have a personal charisma, but that reminds me much more of a Hollywood actor than it does of what we think of, generally speaking, as a statesman. Now, again, you can say very similar things about Trump, but I'm not uh, I'm not going to pretend that Trump is not also a celebrity. I mean, the guy ran a show called The Celebrity Apprentice for for heck's sake. You know, I mean, I, I get it. But uh the differences with Obama, we were led to believe there was this this uh, make believe game with the media that he, he was all substance and it wasn't about style. When I think the opposite's true, he was a lot of style and, and and really very little on the substance as a commander in chief and as a statesman, or at least he was uh, well below the uh, the stories and the assessments we would hear from the media in terms of his acumen and, and his ability. Uh, to lead and his his skill in office. So uh, what we see here with this traveling all over the world is a reminder to a lot of us that this is really uh, the individual who was president for eight years. Uh, It's a guy who uh, has an incredibly high opinion of himself, uh, has always been, I think, just so glaringly lacking in humility. Uh, And unlike Trump, I mean, I think Trump's brand is that he's brash and he's talks about how awesome he is, uh, and no one pretends otherwise. Uh, with Obama, you'll notice no one ever said that, that he, well, I shouldn't say no one, but that the press never ran overall with the storyline that this is a really arrogant guy who is out of touch with people, with, with normal people, with everyday people. And he would talk about the folks, I'm the folks, I like the folks, and I'm going to you know, help the folks in the middle class. And uh, Obama doesn't seem particularly in touch with or even comfortable around middle-class folks. In fact, all we see him doing is the really the, the, the coastal elitist's dream of a post-presidential life, which is just hanging out with the richest of the rich, the most connected people possible, in uh, traveling in, ex- in incredible, and I should note, still taxpayer-assisted in the sense that he's got a security detail, a secret service, and all that, uh, traveling in incredible uh, luxury and extravagance, and he is, for I think a lot of Democrats, viewed as a sort of president, not in exile, but a president, uh, an alternative presidency, without the powers, but still with the, you know, the moral force or something. I mean, however you want to, want to phrase it. Uh, but looking at the choices that he makes and, and the way that he conducts himself in a post-presidential environment, post-presidency environment, uh, it's quite clear to me that o- Obama really is a an elitist and isn't comfortable 
dealing with the problems of uh, just your everyday average American and has really found himself to be distanced from distance from that for a long time. You know, community. He was a community organizer, I know, and people say, well, doesn't he have uh, connectivity to the common common people from that? You know, to the common folks. And the reality is, I think that was always just a vehicle for his own advancement. Uh, you know, he left that whole community organizer thing behind really quickly to chase personal political power. So there are a lot of ways you can see this, I know, and I'm clearly not favorably disposed towards Obama. Um, but I think we are getting a sense now that he doesn't have to go through the go through the uh, pretense anymore of being a, a man of the people, which all politicians do on one level or another. Uh, there's a lot a lot of them pretending that they're all just the guy you want to, you know, have a have a sandwich and a beer with. Um, but with Obama, I mean, this guy is a he's a super elitist. Uh, he is an elitist in a way that I could see. You know, him teaming up with Gwyneth Paltrow on some kind of project in the future. You know, I mean, that wouldn't surprise me all that much. And meanwhile, he's the most respected man in the Democrat Party still, no question. Uh, All right, team, I'm going to hit a break here. We'll be back. Uh, Stay with me. Trump care would send her to Mexico for birth control. That is the title of a CNN piece. I know, CNN, once again. A CNN piece that has gotten uh, some attention from those who are watching this whole healthcare debate very closely. And it's, it's what you would expect at this point in time from the media. You will see many stories of people that are sympathetic, uh, who have had health problems. And, of course, the hero in the story is going to be Planned Parenthood. And in this case, this story is about a woman named Ariana Gonzalez and how she and her husband want birth, want birth control. And she says that if Obamacare becomes law, she will drive to Mexico. She lives in California, in Southern California. If Obamacare becomes law, she will have to drive to Mexico for birth control. Now, as you no doubt know, birth control is in its simplest form, of course— available not just in any drugstore, but in any number of places across the country that sell. I mean, it's it's not just drugstores, but even in tobacco shops will carry not the pill, but will carry a form of birth control. Um, But usually for birth control, you go to Walgreens or CVS or one of the whatever pharmacy is near you. Uh, It's not necessary beyond getting the initial prescription uh, to go see a doctor. So she's claiming here, or rather this story gives you a lot of background on this, on this woman. Uh, and as I said, she, there's sympathetic much that, to her story that you'd be sympathetic to. Um, she was told by a doctor she was pregnant at 15. Uh, she was told by a doctor she could have an abortion. She chose not to, which I have to say, I applaud her for making the right decision as a very uh, young person who I'm sure was quite scared and um, had regret over some decision-making in that process uh, leading up to the decision to choose life, of course, but I mean before that. Um, But they talk about how she uh, then had a number of problems with her pregnancy, and and Planned Parenthood keeps coming up in the context in the story of uh, providing necessary uh, medical services for a woman. And as I uh, read the story, I just kept thinking to myself, 
it doesn't make the, the core case here about what Planned Parenthood really does and what it refuses to stop doing, and that is perform abortions. And if we're going to have people making this case in the media, and of, of course the media is 90% pro-choice, maybe even more, maybe 95, maybe 98, I don't know, but the, the media is mo- more pro-choice, I would argue, and it is even uh, Democrat in the sense that they are uh, absolutely unified in being pro, uh, pro-Planned Parenthood, pro, uh, pro-choice. And this is also, by the way, the reason that you see very little coverage of the clearly politicized charges that have been filed against a journalist for doing undercover journalism against Planned Parenthood in California, David DeLayden. Um, they're refiling those charges now after the charges were uh, rescinded. So they're still going after them. That's obviously political persecution. Uh, but the media usually would be defending undercover journalists or an undercover journalist. In this case, though, they're leaving him high and dry because, of course, he went after the sacred Planned Parenthood. Uh, so, but anyway, back to this CNN story. Uh, it is on its face ridiculous that somebody would choose to go to Mexico for birth control when they live in the United States. And there are obviously providers as well as uh, health care, I'm sorry, health care centers and also, of course, drugstores, which is all you need for birth control, uh, unless you plan on getting a new prescription. You know, you have to get a uh, a new prescription and uh, visit with a doctor every time. But usually, they just renew a prescription if you need them to. So, uh, and the prescription is not for every month. So, I'm I'm confused as to the urgency of the need to see a doctor for birth control here. But once again, notice how we're talking about. Uh, birth control and not abortions, which is what Planned Parenthood is most concerned with. Uh, And there are some very interesting numbers that came up in the course of this piece that I don't think will necessarily have the uh, impact. Well, it depends on the reader, but it it doesn't uh, strengthen the case that Planned Parenthood should be funded by the federal government. Um, 87% according to the CNN piece, of patients who go to Planned Parenthood in California are on Medicaid. So almost 9 out of 10 people who go to Planned Parenthood in California are uh, qualify for health care welfare, which is what Medicaid is. And they we know that the, the primary business of Planned Parenthood is, in fact, uh, abortions. And so why why are we to think anything other than your tax dollars are going to fund this procedure? Um, that that is just the reality, and that Planned Parenthood and other organizations pretend that anything else is true is just a a really vile and obvious lie. Um, but this is a central a central foundational aspect of the Democratic Party um, to be in, to be making abortion legal uh, and to be really pro abortion. I mean, this is in in order to to justify. Uh, organizations like Planned Parenthood, you do have organizations that pretend to be feminist or are, are progressive feminist organizations in some capacity, and they'll even celebrate abortion, which is truly one of the most uh, evil and and uh, disgusting things one, I think, could ever come up with. But there are those who have even gone that far. Now, that's not mainstream, but that does happen. Um, but it's just such an, it's such an exercise in propaganda to read a CNN piece about a woman who's saying she's going to go to Mexico for health care because Planned Parenthood would be defunded. There are many times 
uh, the number of community uh, health centers that don't perform abortions as there are Planned Parenthoods. The money that Planned Parenthood does not get, assuming that this Republican bill goes through, um, could easily be transferred to those health organizations so that they have more resources and greater staffing. Um, but more to the point, Planned Parenthood could just say, we're not going to perform abortions anymore, and then the whole debate goes away, and they could leave this to be a private service. But no, the Democratic Party and Planned Parenthood insist on you paying for abortions. Um, they make us all complicit in this because our tax dollars are going to it. And, you know, w- one day we're told, oh, Planned Parenthood is self-sustaining. It doesn't really need government funds, especially for abortions. And the next day we're told, well, if they pull government funds, the whole thing shuts down. Well, which is it? I mean, they just lie and change the story and are in this constant game of, of hiding the truth from us. Because I think there is somewhere deep down, at least in the minds of some leftists, some Democrats, a recognition that the day will come when the American people will look around and say to themselves, how did we allow this to continue for as long as we did? How was this the law of the land uh, post Roe v. Wade uh, not changed by the courts and funded by our tax dollars for decades? Uh, This mass slaughter of the unborn. It's it's truly horrifying. Um, But they're telling stories about it like there's nothing wrong with Planned Parenthood at all, and it's, it's a disgrace. All right. Uh, I'm going to hit a break here, team. I, w- I want to talk to you uh, coming up here about some, some different stuff, including a, a prion. I want to tell you about that and more. Stay with me. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields High. Chronic wasting disease. It's a terrifying sounding condition uh, for something that we don't really know very much about largely affects animals, but we have concerns about how it could perhaps become a greater problem for human beings. And it has properties that, for many of you, will sound similar to the plot of a zombie movie. It is incredibly difficult uh, to prevent transmission of it among animals. It is untreatable, it is fatal, and it is even hard to kill with fire. Uh, this is a, 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 a scientific monster that we are just beginning to learn more about. Now, let me talk to you. Uh, let me tell you about where this all comes from. So, chronic wasting disease is the condition, and currently the National Park Service uh, is watching uh, how it plays out in Arkansas and Colorado with herds of elk. And they are trying to figure out a way to prevent the further spread of this because chronic wasting disease in animals causes them to slowly have a, a not that slowly, but a, it's a progressive uh, neuro, neuro, uh, neurological disease that is degenerative. And so they lose all neurological function. The animals have a droopy head, glassy eyes, frothy at the mouth, and then they just eventually die. Uh, and it's a, it's a slow and painful and terrible death. And once the animal dies, further infection is possible even from the decomposing body, because chronic wasting disease does not come from a bacteria or a virus, although it has uh, it co- it's similar in its transmission in some ways and its replication to a virus. It comes from something called 
a prion. Now, if you've never heard of a prion before, I promise you, you're, you're not alone. I just learned about it myself this week, and the more I read about it, the more I just found it to be fascinating and really unsettling. A prion is a malformed or deformed protein. Now, it's a portmanteau between protein and infection, so that's where you get prion. It put, puts pro, protein and infection together into, uh, into prion, and is also short for a pro, proteinaceous infectious particle. So it's able to propagate itself, but like I said, it is not a it is not technically speaking a virus or a bacteria. It's not a living organism. It is a protein, uh, and what it does is it form it forces it forces other proteins to become similarly uh, de- deformed, and it has a, a an effect on the central nervous system. Uh, it, it it essentially infects the central nervous system. And I'm sure you've you've heard of this before, this process before, most famously in uh, what is called mad cow disease, which is one of what are called TSEs or transmissible spongiform encephalopathies. TSEs. Now, all TSEs in human beings, these transmissible spongiform encephalopathies, are completely impossible to treat so far, and they are fatal. And this is why there was such uh, fear over the possibility of transmission from cows to human beings, and you've seen efforts to try and prevent this uh, from spreading within livestock populations. Uh, but it exists right now in, in wild populations as well. The National Park Service in this country is trying to look at ways to stop this. You see, the, the spread, which was initially thought to just result from uh, close contact, uh, perhaps in the, in the waste matter and, and other uh, means of, the same way that a lot of diseases are spread, although remember, this is from a protein, not a, a, a living uh, organism like a virus or a bacteria. Uh, in a sense, this is uh, just... <laughs> Uh, it's it's like a, fo- a very advanced form of, of a poisoning, uh, but the cadaver itself can spread a prion because when the body dies, prion uh, particles or prion proteins are incredibly durable, which is part of why it has been now documented officially in 24 states in animal populations in this country, and it's it's constantly expanding. And uh, biologists who are watching this closely estimate that in some uh, herds, there can be about 50% of the population has uh, prions. Uh, They carry prions. So they're looking at this much more closely now than they ever have before because it's becoming a worse problem. And like I I said, it's, it's growing within these populations. And the greater the population that has this, not only will that uh, possibly decimate some of our, our wildlife populations uh, of elk and other herd animals, but also the moment that this becomes uh, more transmissible uh, into human populations, of course, people will be uh, understandably deeply concerned about this because we, we have no treatment for it, and once infected, it is fatal. As of 2016, though, before I get everybody in uh, too much of a panic here, as of 2016, only 231 people uh, have developed the condition from eating 
beef from cows who had prions in their own brains. So you've only had a couple hundred people around the world die from this, which still makes it an incredibly rare disease uh, for human beings. Uh, Scrapey is what you call this when it's in sheep, by the way. Um, and it's uh, and that's now they're looking at the different uh, interspecies transmission of this because deer get it, sheep get it, elk uh, as well can can have this prion condition. Um, and where it was once thought that this uh, this protein particle that remember causes uh, causes death, I mean in, in all cases, uh, was only limited to the brain, which is how you get to the uh, cognitive and, and neuro uh, neurological disorder aspects of this. Um, it's also now found in the lymph nodes and the spleen of deer, elk, and moose populations. So the uh, ways to deal with this, this is, this is where you start to see how this can be, uh, you know, this is a, a real problem that has to be tackled, and scientists are looking at this closely and not having that much success, uh, is that to successfully kill uh, prions in a in a laboratory environment, uh, scientists have to heat any tools that are in contact with the prions to 600 degrees Celsius. That's over 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, those of you who are used to uh, bacteria, um, that you know, if you boil something, uh, it's very likely that you've killed the bacteria off. And uh, certainly, with vi- there are some viruses. It depends. Some viruses are barely even able to survive in the air. Uh, for very long, others are, you know, air transmissible. Um, but it, it's it's rare to come across a particle like this that has infectious properties that has to go to 600 degrees Celsius. I mean, that's that what that means. And this is where you get into a, another, I think, very interesting and and dis- disconcerting part of this whole discussion is that it's not enough to uh, not enough to boil, and it's not even enough to necessarily expose prions to fire. So when you want to prevent the continued spread of this protein plague, which does, when you see the photos too of deer and other animals that have this chronic wasting disease, which is just the name for infection with uh, prion, uh, it's it, they are they look zombie-like, and there is a a continuation of this, and almost a, a feeling that this is like the the undead uh, coming back because. Even when the animal is killed by the disease, you know, generally speaking, there's a pretty short uh, period. It, it's hard to get infected by a dead body. I know you can with different diseases, but it, it's hard to be infected with a dead body because the bacteria, the other, uh, the living organisms on the on that tissue uh, will will go away um, as well uh, over time. Whereas with prions, they think it could last years, maybe even decades. So after the body has entirely decomposed, I'm not talking about a body that's still warm or that's only, you know, a, a deer carcass that's only been around for a day or two. Uh, you know, bacteria can continue. Obviously, there's bacteria that go into the decomposition process. And, and depending, on the, uh, depending on the specific epi- epidemiological problem we're talking about here, sure, it, it can last for a while. The contagious properties of, of even uh, dead bodies can continue on for some period of time. But with prions, even if you light the body on fire, now I'm thinking about uh, Game of Thrones, you know, how you have to deal 
with the uh, anybody who's been infected by the White Walkers. You've got to light the body on fire or else it'll come back. Even if you were to burn the deer carcass, it wouldn't necessarily kill the prions. So now they're thinking about, as a means of controlling this in the populations as it continues to spread. And remember, scientists are... They just named this thing back in the in the 80s. This is a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, they just named prions in the 80s. They're still studying it. They don't really understand why it's transmitting more in some populations of animals than others. They don't really understand where it can be found in the tissue of the am- animals and what animals have it where. And uh, there's a lot of still needs to be figured out here in order to try and control this. Uh, they're continue. They're con- they're considering uh, controlled burns. They're essentially setting forest fires in some areas that are controlled, obviously, uh, be- not because it even can kill the prion, uh, but because it will get rid of the uh, the grass and the other uh, things that might be assisting in the transmission of the dead bodies from the prions. Uh, when s- essentially a-, a deer dies and then. As it wastes away and it decomposes, the prion infects the surrounding grass and seeps into the ground. And so other deer come along, and this is how they get exposed to this continuous uh, prion infection. They eat that grass. Now they have the prion infection and so on and so forth. So this is one concern about how this is spread. And they... um, are thinking about just burning, essentially burning down the forest and the grass and the trees in some areas just to stop this from continuing to spread. Now, and I know we're talking a lot here about how to prevent the spread of this between animals. I I do want to note, as I said, it is still very rare in people. There are forms of uh, prion disease that you can get uh, that there's a genetic predisposition to. Um, The most common prion disease that affects humans is called CJD or Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Um, but you, you can get it from uh, eating infected meat from an animal with prion. That's why the spread of this among herd populations in the United States is is of concern to all of us. But it, it is still very rare. There are only all in each year in the United States, there are only a few hundred cases of prion disease. You can also get it from infected instruments during a, 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 a uh, an operation. Um, but like I said, very, it is very, very rare. Um, but when you see this problem continuing to spread among animal populations, of course, people are going to ask very important and relevant questions like, okay, well, this is rare, but will it always be rare? What happens if this gets into the broader animal population? How do we prevent transmission and can we work on treatments? But mostly also, I just wanted to learn about this protein that is so deadly and so hardy and difficult to eradicate called a prion. So I just think of this as a little uh, science deep dive today, team. Uh, We'll be back with a very interesting wrestler in just a minute. Stay with me. I know this is kind of random, but I got to say I love this. (laughs) This is so fun. So uh, I I used to watch, when I was a kid, um, I did watch some uh, professional wrestling uh, I was a I was a fan of uh, Hulk Hogan and uh, you know Andre the Giant, Macho Man Randy Savage. Uh, I watched definitely a few WrestleManias when it was the WWF before the World Wildlife Fund uh, brought suit, and it then had to become the WWE for World Wrestling uh, Entertainment. I, I can't say that I've watched any professional wrestling in in uh, probably at this point a couple of, of decades, but I- I'm familiar with it and. 
I, I get it as, as fun entertainment. And like I said, when I was younger, I, I enjoyed watching uh, some, some of that WWF stuff and Hulk Hogan, all the rest of it. Uh, but there's this character, and this is a, a, at a smaller uh, level. It's, it's the uh, Appalachian Mountain Wrestling Organization, which is a, it's like a, the more minor leagues of uh, professional wrestling. But there's a character uh, called the, the Progressive Liberal. Now, now he's obviously a, a heel, right? There are, there's the face and there's the heel. The face is the good guy in wrestling. The heel is the guy that everybody loves to hate. But the fact that this wrestling organization has a guy named the Progressive Liberal who uh, shows up wearing, <laughs> I love this, who shows up wearing not my president t-shirts and, and also sometimes just shows up with a t-shirt to his wrestling match that's just a collage of Hillary Clinton photos. It's pretty amazing. I wanted to uh, play a little bit of what this guy uh, sounds like when he shows up. This is the progressive liberal, uh, a wrestler, a professional wrestler in the Appalachian Mountain uh, League. Um, and uh, here, here he is, the, the progressive liberal. You continually vote against your own interests. You put people in Congress, in the White House. They aren't going to help you. They're not going to bring your jobs back. So what? let me tell you what the progressive liberal Daniel Richards is going to do. We're going to reprogram you. We're going to re-educate you. We're going to teach you to read and write. We're going to help you get jobs with clean energy. Newest Appalachian no, Mountain. It's Appalachian. Let me let me ask you something. Where do you live in a holler? Yeah. No. You live in a hollow. Say it with me. Hollow. <laughs> so I think I think you get the basics here from the progressive liberal who's now a wrestler. Uh, he likes to he likes to correct people. He likes to lecture the he likes to correct the way they pronounce things. He likes to uh, lecture them on politics. He says that the the audience needs to be uh, re- reprogrammed, um, and, and he just gets this smarmy, leftist, uh, condescending uh, liberal elite. He's just got it, man. He's he's totally nailed it. And, and what a great character from the modern era. I wonder if this guy uh, might be able to, you know, make make the leap into the big leagues. I have to say, he's not a particularly, you know, by wrestler standards, not a particularly big or uh, or a buff dude. Um, but but he's got a great character here. You know, what well, I you know, you you people need to be pre reprogrammed. You you vote against your interests. You. Uh, and I'm sure that he just gets those those boos from the audience at the uh, uh, at the at the Appalachian Mountain Wrestling Organization in Kentucky. So anyway, I just thought this was I thought this was pretty fun. Uh, the progressive liberal is now a a bad guy in the wrestling world, um, and certainly it's all too real, all too real a character for many of us when it comes to uh, the media and their attitudes towards the rest of the country. Uh, so. Uh, anyway, thank you very much for letting me have a little a little fun there for a moment. Um, team, please do uh, check out our podcast. Go to Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. Um, also, uh, you can go to BuckSexton.com for news updates throughout the day. We are still uh, getting the final designs together on some T-shirts for Team Buck and uh, other, uh, other fun stuff that we're going to be posting up there. So excited about uh, all of that and more stuff to come. As the summer continues on, I've uh, got a lot of projects and ideas in mind uh, for all things 
all things Freedom Hut. I got some Freedom Hut t-shirts too. Uh, so uh, thank you very much, as always, for joining us here on the show. Uh, please do tell a couple of friends about the show when you get a chance. That's the way that we uh, we grow the team. And uh, that's uh, oh, a, a huge compliment you can pay to us and everybody here uh, on Buck Saxon with America Now. So thank you so much. And uh, Shield Tide.